0: Thanks be to God for every one of you. Thanks be to God for church. Um, Thanks be to God for you, Lindsay, and that beautiful testimony. Uh, A note before we begin, um, there are probably several of us in this room who have experienced sexual assault or sexual molestation, and if you're one of them, uh, it is not your fault. This is a place where you would be believed. And if you're not ready to talk about it here, I would recommend to you RAINN, R-A-I-N-N. You can Google it, and it has all the resources in the world. So if that's on your heart, you go there. Psalm 88, guys. This is a pretty sad song. It's a pretty, pretty depressing song. There is no note of hope here, uh, which is why I'm curious. I'd love to hear some of the sad songs you all shared during our passing of the piece, what's the song that makes you cry? What's the song that brings you there, that fills you with what the psalms call the bread of tears? What is it? Give me a song. Anybody, everybody. Stand by Rascal Flats. I once saw Rascal Flats live and it was amazing. <laughs> um, what are some other songs that make you cry? Oh, whew, that's a killer. That's, yeah, mm-hmm, that one's hard. <laughs> other songs that make you cry? Fix You by Coldplay. Ooh, a lot more country up in here than I thought there would be. I, Yeah, okay. Uh, in the middle of the city, we got a lot of country, country folk. Uh, other songs that make you cry? <laughs> Anything else? How great thou art. Yeah, right? Thanks, Kobe. (laughs) Um, I took a little poll. We have a starting point group of people who are going to become members of the church, and I took a little poll of saddest songs uh, 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 with a couple of samples from me. And one of the big ones is Someone Like You by Adele. Right? This is a good sit and have a deep cry song. For me, when I think about crying to a song, um, I'm hoping that this is a safe space and I will not have a vulnerability hangover after I share this with you. Uh, when I was in high school, a boyfriend broke up with me and I had to take an SAT 2 the next day <laughs> and then the next week I had a cardiologist appointment because my heart was acting weird and I'm totally fine and I was totally fine, but I was in a place of great angst. <laughs> And so on the two-hour drive there, I just played my Mariah Carey number one hits album all the way and always be my baby over and over and over and over again. And I cried and I cried. Um, But I kept playing it, right? The song didn't make me cry and then I was like, oh, I don't want to cry. Put that away. There was something about the crying that was uh, helpful. There was something about the crying that was cathartic. There was something about going deeper into my sadness rather than trying to push it away that felt good and felt right and felt like the thing to do in that situation. A lot of us have movies or songs that make us cry that we don't avoid but step into because there's something about the tears that helps. I think that's what the psalmist is doing here. In Psalm 88. Human the Ezraite, it says, is the author of this one. He's mentioned like a couple other times in the Bible, and these are my favorite biblical characters. Someday we'll go through a whole list. Uh, The like the walk-on characters, right? Who like walk through the corner of the screen and then you never see them again and you wonder what their whole story is, what their whole experience with God is. He's mentioned once or twice as one of the three main worship leaders during this time at the temple. He's a professional musician, right? A professional band leader. He's helping to lead worship at the biggest game in town, the temple in Jerusalem. He's been appointed by David. He's got skills, right? He's got a great job. He's one of the sons of Korah. He's a part of an ancient tradition of caring for the temple. Um, And we know that that was his job, but the only other thing, we know his his lineage, right? Bible loves to give, and then there—this was his father, and that was his father, and that was his father. And you know, sometimes a mother or a daughter slips in there. We reclaim their names as well; those side characters. Um, but the only psalm, because the psalms are the hymn book of the Bible, right? They're the worship guide. They're the song book that you put on your piano when you want a new tune at night. The only one with his name on it is this one. This is the only thing that he felt strongly enough about to say this is mine, (laughs) this came from me, this came from my heart and it came from my hands and this is what I have to offer, God and the world. And what he has to offer is his unrelenting misery. There are a lot of Psalms that are sad, but most of them at the very end, right, they'll have been dwelling in sadness and dwelling in pain and hurt and then at the very end it's like, know you got me God right like but God is great things are gonna be fine there's a there's an uptick right there's a pronouncement of faith this has no such button it has no such cup half full claim it's just about that place of being sad and things being hard and things feeling like they are terrible that's a real place in the story of God and in the story of our lives We often forget, um, we talk so much about Good Friday Jesus, right? who is active and making sacrifices and standing up for people, and we talk a lot about Easter Sunday Jesus, who is resurrected and miraculous, but we forget that there's a Holy Saturday Jesus, a Jesus who's just dead, a Jesus who's just sad, a Jesus who's just in a hard and terrible place, and as Jesus meets us everywhere, Jesus meets us there, in our sadness, in our deep, dark places. I have not always been so convinced of that. Sadness is one of the harder emotions for me. Um, I grew up with parents who were really loving and really wonderful parents, but any parent will tell you, um, there's like always stuff you screw up, right? Always stuff you would do differently the second time around, even if you had great intentions and did a good thing. And what was, the thing about my parents was that they both um, were constantly asking their kids, like, wh- like how, uh, what can we do for you, how, how can we support you? They accepted any emotion we put out, right? They wanted to create a space where we could be emotional. Um, they would have embraced any tears that I showed or any sadness that I expressed except Um, they, I think, were both strong caretaker types. They wanted to take care of the people around them. They didn't wanna burden anyone around them, right? They wanted to be able to do it on their own. And so I never saw them get sad, ever really. I mean, I can count on one hand, probably, the times that I saw one of my parents um, cry or express despair or depression about something. And so, despite their words, what I took in was, right, strong people don't get sad. (laughs) Good people don't get sad. Um, Being a person means that you don't get sad so that you don't burden the people around you and everything is okay. So I would resist the sadness inside myself as something to be avoided, something to be put away. If I felt sad about something, somebody else always had it worse, right? Um, And so it would be silly for me to be sad about it. If I'm sad about losing my geometry textbook, there are starving children, right? I don't need to be sad, I push it away. if I'm sad about my boyfriend breaking up with me, uh, there's great injustice in the world. I don't need to be sad, I need to push it away. Um, and eventually, uh, I was clinically depressed. <laughs> and I was like, well, but there are people who have psychotic breaks. Like Your depression is nothing, <laughs> right? It doesn't, you don't need to address it. You don't need to think about it. Um, the sadness, I was always pushing and pushing and pushing it away because it felt like it would burden other people. And it felt like it would be a sign of weakness in me. That's particular to me, that's particular to my story and my family, but I think our resistance to sadness has become a cultural weight that all of us bear. How many of you know someone who has gone to the hospital or uh, had cancer or lost a job or just been in a crummy place, and someone says to them, think positive? Think positive, right? If you dwell on your sadness, it'll invite more. The secret man, right? If you put out bad vibes, bad vibes will come to you. If you think about the things that make you feel bad, more will happen. Um, We live in a real positivity culture that encourages us to tamp down any sadness we feel, any frustration we feel with the the way that the world works. and it says to us, if we only think positively, we will be positive. And I just think that that's a lie. <laughs> and it's certainly not what our faith is calling us to. There are moments of real hope in this story. There are moments of real joy in this story. But there is also a whole book called Lamentations. There is also a Jesus who says to God, why have you forsaken me? Sadness is a part of the story, and it's a part of our emotional palette, and it's a part of what we are called to. Sadness is hard. But never being sad always ends up being harder. Sadness is hard, but never being sad will always end up being harder. And I might have learned that lesson a little bit earlier uh, if I had been the right age when Inside Out came out. Our movie that we are discussing this sermon series, uh, because it really investigates like why is sadness here? I'm going to warn you, it's been out for a couple years, so I'm just gonna go ahead and spoil it with the next clip that we're watching. If that is tragic to you, you can cover your ears. <laughs> but I promise that the whole movie is still worth seeing and still beautiful, even if you know how it ends. So let me set up a little bit of context. In Inside Out, we follow the brain of an 11-year-old girl named Riley. And her emotions, joy, anger, fear, sadness, and disgust, uh, kind of run her brain, right? The memories that they form, that they are a part of, help to influence her behavior, help to guide what she does, uh, until one day, after having grown up a happy Minnesotan, playing hockey everywhere, joy every day, joy is kind of her dominant emotion, her parents move her to San Francisco, land of kale and unfamiliarity. And she is upset, she's upset, but she keeps on hearing from her parents what a, what a hard thing it is they're doing, that they need to be positive. We need to be positive about this move and then it's gonna work out. We have to do it for dad's job so it's gonna work out. So she keeps on trying to be positive and be positive and be positive. Um, and her emotions start to break down because they can't work. The joy in her mind keeps saying to Sadness, like, get out of here, right? Get out of here, Sadness. You make everything depressing. You make everything blue. This should be my space. And so, with no emotions to call on, um, Riley starts to get numb. <laughs> the the uh, control board for her, her life starts to go gray, and she decides to run away from her house because nothing matters anymore, and life is too hard until this clip, so let's play it and see what happens. Riley needed sadness. We need sadness because sadness is the bat signal. Sadness is the bat signal. It says to our friends and our family and our community, whoever we have made them to be, if our friends and family are a part of the problem, I need you. I can't do this alone. This is too much and we aren't made to be islands. Sadness is the bat signal, tears are the thing that tell people, (laughs) I need help. And needing help has never been and never will be something that God or we should be ashamed of. It's a part of what it is to be human. It's a part of what it is to be. Sadness is what reaches out of us and says to other people, You can be sad, we can be sad together. Sometimes the world is hard. We move, or things fall apart, or the world hurts us and rejects us for being simply who we are, and we're sad. And expressing that sadness never means that we're weak, it just means that we need help, as everyone and everything ever has. And we aren't afraid to ask for it. Sadness is the bat signal, don't keep it out of your life. Last week we read uh, the longest verse in the whole Bible, um, a psalm that is a peon to God's glories and wonders and happy things, but for my money, um, one of the most transformative verses of the Bible is the shortest, which is Jesus wept, right? Jesus wept openly and in a community and in a city and a lot of people say Jesus wept because it sounds good but then they don't tell you the story (laughs) which is that Jesus is visiting his friends Mary and Martha who are so sad and so angry with him because their brother has died and they believe that if he had come sooner that death and that loss and that grief and that pain never would have happened and it's when one of the sisters starts crying that it says, Jesus felt a spirit within him, and he was moved. The tears changed the people around her, and then he started to cry, and the tears changed the people around him. And their love knit them together, and their love bound them together, and I think that even before, as he was, Lazarus was resurrected in the body. That's when the resurrection of the community started to happen, when they all cried when they all cried and weren't afraid of the sadness that life's circumstances had brought them, and they shared it so that they could hold it, not deny it, together. That's what resurrection is, not the making of a sunny, happy, perfect world. But the finding of life in all of the cracks and all of the brokenness and all of the pain that all of us will experience. Sadness is hard, but it's much harder to deny that those cracks are there. There's a form of pottery <laughs> that I love and that I want to share with you, uh, it's called kintsugi, kintsuguroi, uh, from Japan. And, and it has been around for hundreds and hundreds of years. And the idea is, um, if you use something, it will break. If you use a beautiful thing, a pot or a bowl or a cup, it will break. I've broken more cups than I can count. Um, and some people would say, you either buy a new one or you repair it so that it looks like new, right? It looks like new. How often that? have you heard that phrase been used? But in Kintsukuroi, we repair things with gold, with something even more beautiful than the original so that the breaks are the thing you see first because the broken parts are the most beautiful parts. The broken parts are where the object has lived and how the story of the object can be seen firsthand. We don't heal the breaks with plaster to hide them away. We heal them with gold and silver to show how strong the seams are, to show how beautiful the brokenness has made us. The repair, the repair, is not a return to the original, but the making of our brokenness into something beautiful and resurrected and community. There's a set of plates um, made with this method, and what I love about those plates is not just that they are laced with gold and you can see where they've been broken, but that every single one is different. Every single one is different. When we live out our broken pieces, instead of pretending that we're all whole, That's when we're most fully ourselves. Most fully exactly the person who life has made us and exactly the person who God created us to be. The broken parts aren't weak. The broken parts aren't anything to be ashamed of. The broken parts are the prettiest, most beautiful parts because when we cry, when we send out that signal, we ask people to come to us, when they do it, we create something extraordinary together. The love and the care that comes out of pain, the love and the care that comes out of sadness and brokenness, is the best kind. (laughs) It's the best kind, and it's a kind that we will never stop needing because we will never stop hurting. But hurt might not be the only thing that we have anymore. The last line of Haman's psalm, of this psalm of pain and disaster, um, Psalm 88, is, you have taken from me friend and neighbor Darkness is my closest friend. We're never going to come to a place in our life where darkness isn't one of our friends. And if you have that goal, you're in for a lot of extra suffering. (laughs) Darkness is always there. Sadness is always there. It's one of your friends. But I wonder, as Haman sang this before the congregation that he worked for, right? As he sang before the people who thought of him as the expert, and the musician and the wonderful exalted one as he sang his song of woe and song of pain. I just imagine them flooding him afterwards with comfort, surrounding him afterwards with hugs. And then darkness was his friend, but it was no longer his only friend. It had companions and he had companions for the journey, and if we know God and if we are church, So do we. Our broken spots are our best spots. Our sadness is our bat signal. And if we go out into the world making friends with it, it will always bring new friends along. For this, we give thanks to the God who made us. Amen.